well, you, you can teach. You can teach without engagement. It's just that a lot of kids won't learn anything. And, and, and in the end, the point of teaching is learning. It, it's some other things as well. It's child development and so on. Welcome to Lighting a Fire. All things teaching and learning with the Teaching Council. Welcome to the first episode of Season 2 in the Teaching Council's Lighting a Fire podcast. That's the podcast where we discuss all things teaching and learning with a diversity of voices. My name is Tomás O'Rourke and I am the Director and CEO of the Teaching Council here in Ireland. And I'm delighted, particularly delighted, to announce that our guest for today's episode is none other than the great Andy Hargreaves. Andy is a professor at Boston College and at the University of Ottawa. He's also a writer speaker, consultant, policy advisor, and I would also add to that list, a thought leader at a global level in education. He is the founder of the ARC, that's the Atlantic Rim Collaboratory. He's the founder of the ARC Education Project, of which Ireland is a member nation. This is a group of nations committed to broadly defined excellence, equity, well-being, inclusion, democracy, and human rights in professionally run systems. And along with Dennis Shirley, Andy recently released the book, Five Paths to Student Engagement, which brings together seven years of collaborative research on engagement. Andy, I know we've spoken before on a number of different, both face-to-face in person and online as well, but I never tire of conversing with you and and, uh, hearing your thoughts. It's it's a real particular pleasure to have you here on the podcast. Hello, Thomas, and uh, welcome to all your listeners. Brilliant, brilliant. Andy, we know with our guests in this podcast where we have these one-to-one conversations, we always start the same question. We kind of take it from there. We grow the conversation from there. Simply put, what was school like for you growing up? Well, school for me was probably like school for many people. It was the best of times and the worst of times, as Dickens might have said. Uh, primary school was 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 a lot of the best of times and a bit of the worst of times. And secondary school, uh, selective boys' secondary school in a northern working class town in the 1960s was uh, far more of the worst of times than the best of times. Uh, pr- primary school was was really uh, particularly the top year of primary school. I, written about this. I had a year with a teacher who was years ahead of her time. She fit with an ethos that was emerging in England at the time, which was very much focused around the kind of things that Ireland has cared about for years, the whole child, uh, child development, not not just intellectual, cognitive development, uh, having children, working groups, valuing play, learning with nature, uh, using uh, uh, singing, dancing, uh, the the arts, uh, creative writing connected to your interests. Uh, she intuitively understood, I think, what we'd now call the neurodiversity of uh, the, the kids in the class. And uh, I was uh, a bit chatty, a bit lively, and, uh, and she brought out the best in me and uh, prevented the worst of me getting to excess. So she really modeled in many ways the kind of teacher I wanted to be and, and, and why I might think teaching was a good line of work for me as an adult. A secondary school was almost the evil twin of my primary school experience. It was a school on the other side of town from the, uh, from the side of town that, that I lived in. It, it was uh, staffed by many men who had returned from uh, World War II, some of them with a passion for teaching, but many who uh, didn't like teaching, didn't like the work, didn't even appear 
to like children very much. And um, so the curriculum, the ways of teaching felt quite alien in lots of ways. I found history, for example, totally detached from the kind of uh, working class experience I had growing up in in Lancashire. Uh, history was about kings and queens, uh, popes and prime ministers and presidents, uh, mainly men, overwhelmingly men, all about individuals. Uh, it was not the history of the many rather than the history of the few. And so the only way I passed history in the end and got to university at the second time of asking uh, was by teaching myself history in the local public library. Thank goodness for the Victorians and their public parks, public schools and, and public libraries. And uh, there I taught myself economic and uh, social history uh, which was on the curriculum, but not really taught by the school, and uh, passed with flying colours and uh, got off. So in some ways, I felt I got through secondary school uh, with one exception, my geography teacher, despite my teachers rather than because of my teachers. So when I moved into teaching and then, then into teacher education and the kind of work I do now, it it was really trying to emulate the, the the best of teaching that I'd seen as a young child and uh, correct and remedy the worst of teaching that I'd experienced in high schools as an adolescent. Very interesting. Like you, as you say, in your, in your own recollection, it's a tale of two cities almost, as you say, and two yeah. different halves. And what always strikes me about your own thinking, Andy, and when I've heard you speak and when I've read of your work, eh, you seem to marry the be very best of the humanics, if I could describe it as that, as well as with the pedagogical robustness. So yeah. you can't be accused at any stage, I would have thought, of, and I think your background is casting a light on this, of prioritizing one over the other. What would you, what would you say to that to that, that question? Well, I, I think school-like life is, is and should be about enjoyment and fulfillment, and not only about happiness and fun. And... Uh, happiness and fun is going on a ride at Disney World, which requires no effort and no investment. It's not a bad thing. We've taken our kids, and um, many of you will have taken your kids over to France, for example, or Florida to, to Disney World. So I'm not arguing against it, but this can't be the biggest thing we aim for in life or in schools. Enjoyment is like uh, hiking up a mountain or learning a musical instrument or uh, becoming a good athlete. It is, uh, it, it is about uh, a feeling of fulfillment, satisfaction, pride, mastery, um, with, a, with a passion for what you're doing, investment in the material, the ideas, the contribution it can make, the benefit it can have to others, and the effort that is required in order to get there, including Dark Nights of the Soul, where you're not really sure you can make the next level. And that's why teachers are there. Teachers are, are there to put you in that zone in the first place and to help you get that through that zone in the second. I love, I haven't heard this one before, your distinction between happiness and, and fun on the one hand and enjoyment and fulfillment on the other. And it reminds me of, the, there's a late professor, John Coulihan, I'm sure you heard him at some stage. He was of course. Involved. OECD work and so on, um, fantastic man. And he spoke, I, I, I was after he died, someone presented this quote, I haven't got the quote here in front of me, but he referred to the three-letter word that he felt did not receive sufficient attention in education discourse, and that was joy. 
Right. Uh, yeah. yeah, it was Joy. And I mindful of what you said, and I know you spoke of her before, your, your primary school teacher in, um, in Failsha, as distinct from or in contrast to your post-perm experience. What more do systems need to do, do you think, to create space for Joy? Given that it can, is, I think if you're, I understand your comment correctly, Joy can be conflated with happiness and frilly stuff in yeah. other critics' minds. Yeah. You have a very clear understanding of it that I like. I think others will, will clearly resonate with. What do systems need to do to create more space for joy in teaching and learning, do you think? There's a couple of things, really. What is what the teacher can do, and the other is what the system can do mm-hmm. to help the teacher rather than to obstruct the teacher. Uh, what the teacher can do is, and um, uh, most teachers really try to do very well, is to uh, connect the curriculum, connect what is worth knowing in the curriculum, uh, skills, knowledge, dispositions, and connect that to, um, we have to be very careful how we say this, uh, children's existing interests and interests to which we introduce children. So, Kieran Egan, um, who is, I think, originally English, I'm not told, might actually be Irish, I'm not quite sure, uh, who's a Canadian educator, now 80 years old, wrote a great book about learning in depth. And he argued that the that the, the better we become at something, the more interested in it we become. So learning is partly about finding out what kids' interests are already, but introducing them to new things that might become interests. And I think if all of us reflect on interests we've got uh, and ask the question, where did we first get those interests? Now, some you get from your parents, from your family, but I can still take friends, colleagues from around the world on and family on long hikes with me and begin to point out all the geological features of eskers and drumlins and uh, things of that kind, ad nauseam, really. And uh, where does that come from? It comes from having a very inspirational geography teacher in secondary school who introduced me to all those interests. That, so I still collect fossils. They, they've, they've stayed with me all my life. So, and uh, and it sounds like a simple thing, but but connecting the curriculum to children's interests means means knowing the child, knowing their interests, knowing their their family, having interests of your own uh, to to which uh, passions, enthusiasms, uh, to which you introduce uh, children. There's nothing more exciting for a child than actually seeing their teacher generally interested in and enthusiastic about uh, about the subject matter as a bit of a character in a way. And, um, and then finding some blend of those two and, and figuring out with all that how that connects to uh, cultural diversity, other, other forms of diversity, gender diversity, language diversity, and so on. So it's uh, knowledge of the child, it's, it's knowledge of existing and new interests, and uh, it's, it's, it's knowledge of the cultural groups to which our children belong and, and, and where they come from. That's what the teacher can do. What the system can do is uh, develop supports uh, that help teachers uh, do that. So some of this is uh, your work, actually. It's uh, things like culturally responsive uh, teaching, uh, whole child uh, pedagogies, 
uh, uh, well-being and uh, what what we need to do in all kinds of school settings to support students' well-being. And then getting out of the way some of the things that make that hard, the excesses of uh, standardized testing and an examination system uh, that we could really transform now post-pandemic, I think, um, and many nations are now thinking about, that uh, doesn't drive the curriculum with the selection mechanisms that operate to decide whether our young people do or do not go into university. Uh, ones that actually are currently very poor predictors of subsequent university and indeed life achievements. So uh, things that support teachers and, um, and getting the things out the way that actually inhibit or obstruct them. Uh, yeah, this, God, there's, there's so much what you've said. One initial thought, I'll come to a question then, you reminded me also in your latter part of your answer, but, and I noticed it very clearly in the curricular work here in Ireland, a shift from perhaps content-heavy prescribed curricula to curricular frameworks. Mm-hmm. And the intention being to the system get out of its own way, I think, to paraphrase what you've just said and create more space for the teacher to both identify the existing interests of the child and introduce them to new ones. And I like that way you bridge the two. You're touching it. I think you've used the word, Andy, in the first part of your answer on engagement. And I know you have the book published recently, uh, Five Paths of Student Engagement, a reference at the outset. And then as you refer to engagement as both the journey and the destination. So it's all echoes of formative and terminal and some of the assessment there. But before I get to that, I've heard from some teachers and from others in the education space that engagement is, is kind of a almost a pejorative term for them. They say, we're into engagement now. I thought we were supposed to teach. What would you say to that critique? Uh, well, you, you can teach. You can teach without engagement. It's just that a lot of kids won't learn anything. Um, and, and in the end, the point of teaching is learning. It, it's some other things as well. It's child yeah. development and so on. But, yeah, yeah. you know, the, the, the point of architecture is to make beautiful buildings that people enjoy. And uh, if you have no empathy as, as an architect, you'll end up designing ugly buildings that people can't stand. And it's a great testament to your ego, but serves no useful purpose in the world. And so we don't want teachers and we shouldn't have teachers who are just testaments to their own ego about uh, the things that uh, they, they feel they need to teach in exactly the way they want to teach, but rather can teach in a way that get their kids engaged really engaged with what they're doing, excited, interested, challenged, curious. Um, This is what learning is ultimately about. It sounds quite easy, but I think many of us discovered, both in universities and in schools during the pandemic, take away the face-to-face relationship of teaching and put the challenge of engagement in an online, distanced, uh, remote environment with learning at home and suddenly you realize how integral engagement is to the teaching and learning process so uh, and, uh, there there is teaching without engagement there is some learning without engagement for a while for some kids grit resilience zest buoyancy kids who just will soldier on no matter what But the harder the life circumstances and the bigger the distractions for young people, the harder it is to learn without that essential element of engagement. So for most kids, most of the time, there is no learning without engagement. And therefore, there is no teaching of value that 
doesn't pay attention to it. It's interesting because I've asked questions where I've presented or engaged, if I may borrow the phrase, with teachers and schools and presentations. How did they know they were learning? And across the answers I've gathered, that sense of engagement for them as adults mm. in a learning experience comes through very clearly. Yeah. That's we may be different ages and different points of the of the uh, hierarchy, the relationship in the classroom, but we're all human beings, and we we all have that same sensation when we know we're we're, we're learning. Talk to me a bit and talk to the audience, if you wouldn't mind, Andy, a bit about that sense of teachers as learners, because I'm I'm in my tenth year as CEO of the Teaching Council yeah. in Ireland. And I came to realize some years ago that almost counterintuitively, teachers' professionalism is as much about their learning as it is about their teaching. It is. So tell me more, because I think that's a, probably a challenge. I certainly feel we, we face in Ireland, and you have a global perspective on this, that I think the wider society fully understands that for teaching, as it does maybe for the medical professions and so on. Yeah. So talk a bit more about that, if you would, please. Okay, so... Uh, I'll approach this in a couple of ways, if if I can. Please, yeah. The um, the issue with teachers and engagement is you're unlikely to get much student engagement unless you've got teacher engagement. Uh, during the pandemic, I think all of us who have been teaching on Zoom, when it's not interactive like this, where the kids have switched off, where you can't see the faces, you can only see their names, and sometimes, even though you can see their names, they're not even there. You don't know where they're there. I give lecture after lecture into a dark vortex of blackness, uh, seeing nobody on the other side of the screen. And it's soul-destroying. It's utterly, I've got very good at it. And I think many teachers have become very competent, very proficient. But at the end of the day, there's absolutely nothing in it for the teacher. You have no idea what your impact is. You can't see how people are responding. You, If you're lucky, you may get a chat box sometime or an occasional breakout room. And, and what this really highlights is in, in teaching, we have to sustain our teachers. There has to be something in it for for the teachers, you you can sacrifice yourself and and develop your competence. And hour after hour, day after day, week after week, get absolutely no feedback about uh, or minimal feedback about what your impact is. But but if if you are not getting feedback, and if through that feedback you're not learning about where your impact is and where it is not yet, then you're just not sustained as a teacher. And we know what the stresses of educators have been during the pandemic because of that. So, so the learning aspect of teaching is, is hugely important. Uh, they, they, a few years before I retired, because I am technically retired now, it's, it's, the, most failed, it, Andy. <laughs> it's, it's the most failed retirement in history. But, but what it means is, is, is I don't work full-time for a university anymore. I, I retired a bit early because we wanted to come uh, back to Canada and be close to three of our five uh, grandchildren here. That was really the prime motivator. And uh, as an aside, it's been a great move. I've found wonderful colleagues here as well as friends in the in the community. That's another conversation. But as, as I started thinking about retirement and, and becoming aware, even before other people knew, that well, probably 
you know, I got about three years, three, four, five years to go. So what should I do? Well, what's the point of revising all your courses again? What's, what's the point of engaging in constant change? There's going to be no lasting impact of it. Uh, I got good evaluations. Curriculum was sound. Uh, why not put my effort into other things now rather than put everything will be okay? And then somebody said to me, and I wish I could remember who it was because they deserve a lot of credit for this. They said, you know, Andy, the classes you always remember as a teacher, once you've retired, once it's all over, are your first classes and your last classes. And 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 that uh, it was really an observation. It wasn't meant as advice, but that had a huge impact on me. As uh, as many almost off the cuff sentences from people who turn out to be mentors have that they've probably forgotten they said. And so I really thought, how do I want my last classes to be? And so always having been an opponent of uh, digital technology in, in learning. I thought it was a distraction. I thought it was uh, often superficial. Um, I, I thought it reduced the teacher to a facilitator rather than elevating them as a facilitator. I thought, well, I'll do this from a point of knowledge rather than from a point of ignorance. So I went full bore for technology with a view not just how it would replace my teaching, but how I could use it to enhance and enrich the teaching and learning experience with my students. So I went on Twitter. I've now got 41,500 followers. Many of them are dead, but, but, they, still, but they still count. Um, they, uh, I uh, brought in, as you do, some of the top names into the world in my class, people like Sir Ken Robinson, who used to be, you know, tens of thousands of dollars a day, just free time for these 20, 30 students. Uh, but I said to them, he's, he's giving his time free to you. You read his book before he comes in, because he's going to ask you. So they did. So it really kind of ups the level of engagement. I got groups of students to uh, work uh, in real time, obviously virtually, with uh, policymakers in different countries on real policy problems uh, with, with the view that they offered advice that McKinsey or the World Bank would never offer them. They'd offer them something quite different. And, and those students continued with their projects after they got their grades and and in one case after graduation because they were so engaged with what they were doing and felt it was actually impacting people's policies at a at a national level and in 2015 uh, boston college to the shock of people who knew my preceding positions on technology uh, gave me its excellence in teaching with technology award I, I think there was a bit of the reformed sinner about <laughs> it uh who was you know standing up to give testimony but um but what this means is 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 at, at the very point i was tempted to stop learning 
I was inspired to con- not only to continue learning, but actually to increase my learning as a professional. And, and as a result of that, probably did in my very last years, some of the best teaching, I decided I would teach out of my skin, basically. And so I really remember those, as you know, because I've just told you, I really remember those those last classes. Um, but more important, uh, I think my students remember those 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 last classes too for, for them. So uh, there has to be something in it for the teacher. So some of this is what the system does. Some of this is what the person themselves do. In our book on student engagement, there's a, a, a passing paragraph. It's quite short, but I use it as a workshop exercise. And I ask people, well, readers, to imagine a student who's disengaged that they know to think about and why, why are they often disengaged and what's causing it. And then I ask them separately to think about a moment when they've been disengaged as a teacher, as, as an adult, in meetings, in professional development experiences, uh, teaching online, for example. And, and then if we have a chat box, we, we compare the answers. And uh, so if listeners are listening now, they might want to think, hmm, wonder what those answers are. And a, and a common pattern is quite a lot of the explanations as to why students are not engaged is to do with the student and their life circumstances, their uh, family, the, uh, their habits, their, their dispositions. More than with the curriculum or the pedagogy or whatever it might be. Uh, when teachers talk about their own disengagement, it's, it's hardly ever their own fault. It's the system's fault. It's a, it's, a, it's a bad curriculum or an insensitive administrator or uh, something they've been made to teach that they don't want to teach or, or whatever it might be. And, and the conclusion from this is that for both students and for teachers, we need to, we need to think that engagement is both a collective responsibility of, of how the culture around us is organized to get us engaged and to keep us engaged. But for both adults and students, it's also a personal responsibility. You can't sit back in a class or in a workshop with your arms folded at the back and say, come on then, entertain me. Entertainment. Show me, show me what you can do. But, but you have to make a personal investment as a learner as well. And uh, for a long time, I've said with colleagues like Michael Fulham, professional learning is, is a collective right and a personal responsibility. It's both of those things. There are so many, has all, like, I love the way, I'd love to go back later in the conversation, if you have time to that moment where despite your misgivings, you said, I'm going to embrace the ICT space and you surprise all your colleagues years later getting the award. And I love the way you, it seems to me, and I'm paraphrasing here, blended both your own teaching and your own learning with the teaching and learning of your students in those closing years as a very conscious strategy. But I, I want to start, if I may, at the last part, 
because that uh, juxtaposition, perhaps, of the individual responsibility and the collective uh, responsibility yeah. speaks to, perhaps, if I, I'm going to throw it in for mention, I'm going to come back to the question. We, we are exploring with the EU and the OECD, I think I mentioned this to you before some time ago, Andy, about this, trying to develop a model of community-based conversations between teachers and yeah. parents and students. So to what extent do you think, leaving that aside for a moment, just more broadly from your global perspective, I think you're right, and let's assume you are for the moment, that it's a collective responsibility and also an individual responsibility. To what extent are systems globally creating the space and time for the, those two spaces to connect, for the teachers to learn more about the individual backgrounds of students? I have a couple of anecdotes of my own in that space and vice versa. And the whole role of parents, of course, I think is coming more and more to the fore, and rightly so, in, in education policy discourse. So in a nutshell, given those poles of responsibility, to what extent education systems and perhaps government systems more broadly creating the space for connections between the two? And if not, they're not doing what perhaps they should be, what more do we need to do? Well, thanks, Thomas. Uh, uh, everyone listening to this cannot ignore the fact that everywhere the world is in the midst of a profound change and a lot of it not for the better. We've had a pandemic, we'll have more because people and exotic species are coming into closer contact with each other because of population growth, deforestation, pillaging of, of the environment for, for gain and cheap goods, frankly. We have the greatest levels of inequality for over half a century where 26 people, mostly men, on more than half of the world's wealth and pay practically no taxes on it. So half of the world's wealth is not going into public good. And uh, we're beginning to address that. Actually, Ireland's a huge culprit uh, because it, it wants to resist the global move to have minimal corporate taxation. And uh, the teachers should be putting pressure on the Irish government right now because because increasing corporate taxation will put more money into the public good and, and that will benefit all Irish uh, young people and uh, in schools and in life, actually. Uh, we have uh, the Black Lives Matter movement because when, when the waterhole shrinks, uh, the animals look at each other differently. And so racism is always there, of course, but it intensifies. And populism arises and threats to democracy. Even in places where we thought it was impossible, we, we see those things happening. The Economist now says only 8% of countries in the world count as full democracies. Uh, Ireland is one of those. England is not. Uh, and nor is the United States. So... All these things, and then, of course, the massive, massive problems of climate change that threaten our very existence. All these things are, are coming together, and and we need to act, in, including through our schools, and uh, and we see many of these things coming into our schools. So there is a. a a global crisis of mental health problems, uh, anxiety, depression, a post-traumatic stress, people fleeing from unlivable and uninhabitable 
other countries where their lives have been uh, destroyed. These things are not just abstract out there. They they walk through the door and more and more people really, young people really care about them and 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 those who don't should. And so so we really have to ask how does this, can this, should this affect what teaching and learning looks like in our schools, both the process and the content. And even 10 years ago, we say in our book on student engagement, my colleague Dennis Shirley and I, Dennis, by the way, is a proud Irish passport holder, and his great-grandmother created the phrase, a beauty is in the eye of the beholder. She lived on wow. the Blesket Islands. So that Dennis is the proud holder of an Irish uh, passport. And um, we talk about the movement between two ages and up to, if you like, the early teens in 2000, the, the world, including the OECD and including the World Bank, uh, were, were pretty focused on on just sheer growth, um, so economic growth, uh, gross domestic uh, product, and and growth in test scores, uh, growth in performance indicators, uh, narrowing of gaps, through hard work, greater effort, more achievement. That's where all the energy was. That's what the PISA results are focused on with the OECD. When it compared different countries and everybody said, well, we need to get as high as Ireland, actually, which is <laughs> one of the top performers on PISA. And, and then in, in the early teens, something started to change. And uh, it, it happened within a number of countries. So we saw it in Wales. We saw it. In Scotland, we've seen it in some of the Nordic countries. We've definitely seen it uh, within several parts of, of Canada, for example, within some parts of Asia, within South Korea and Singapore. So uh, a, a feeling that three things were happening that bring about all change. One is existing solutions were exhausted. The, the scores weren't going up anymore. The, the gaps weren't narrowing anymore. And people were learning. There were profound negative consequences. There was um, a lot of gaming the system, actually in other sectors like health as well as in education, uh, but, but doing anything to meet the targets, including cheating or just focusing on the kids who were easy wins or narrowing the curriculum or teaching for the test. That So people, not just professionals, but parents and the public started to, to figure out that the existing system wasn't working for their kids and for other kids as, as well. And that's always one of the lead levers for change. There, there was a sense that there were uh, that the needs were changing. So when we look at uh, mental health, when we look at well-being, these were not abstract problems, but but walking through the door. Uh, and in parents' lives, there are rising rates of autism, rising rates of, of Asperger's. And uh, so people began to ask new questions of how could schools uh, respond to to these things, which is why well-being, for example, has become huge on the global agenda. And um, national governments began to shift their policies. So if you look across uh, the Irish Sea at uh, 
Wales and Scotland especially, mm. you'll you'll see great shifts in their policies over an orientation and their goals in education over the last uh, less less than ten years, and um, and then you start to find outliers of uh, countries that already seem to be there that you didn't expect. So. When the PISA results first came out, nobody expected Finland or Singapore to be at the top of the PISA results with systems that were or striving to be systems that had strong professions, a strong public good, broader humanitarian values in, in aspiration, if not always in, in actuality, uh, attention to things like well-being, uh, mental health, the the broader aspects of learning so whenever you're trying to change having having outliers that you can go to and say well they seem to be doing something interesting that that's what we try to do through the arc education uh, movement that that ireland is a very important part of bringing a number of these countries and systems together to to committed to the same values but with different ways of achieving them so actually beginning to network people with with the outliers and building a broader movement for for change and and then we're seeing global organizations like the oecd start to respond to this so the oecd isn't just about uh, PISA results in science, maths, and literacy. Now, in fact, in fact, there's not much news on that anymore. It gets very little press coverage when it happens. But there's a lot of interest in the thirty odd global competencies that that they've identified as being essential to e e economies and functioning citizenries as well. Uh, we've we've seen um, more focus on well-being. Uh, within within the OECD, but also within other global organisations too. So there's been a convergence in in the last few years, a sense that the the, the old solutions are exhausted. Uh, they there are new needs. There are already some examples of of how to approach this, which we need to network together, and that the global conversation is changing as a result of this and. This big picture is making it easier, or should do, for, for many teachers to do what they've always known to be right, which is to engage the child and connect with the, with the whole person, provided we don't add this new agenda of global competencies to the outworn agenda that is no longer fit for purpose, but transform it all instead. Five different questions I could ask you on that. I, I recall a recent podcast, I think, where an astrophysicist talked about the universal laws of physics, talk about entropy. So it, over time, yeah. things decay. But he says, notwithstanding that, the same laws of physics allow for these windows of um, coherence and cohesion. Like mm. life exists now, for example. We are a window of cohesion yeah. in the overall picture. And he'd speak, therefore, on the one hand of, I would agree with you, horrifying, alarming divergence in terms of climate change, for example, alone, you know, fragmentation, breakdown. Mm. I think of the story of a German mayor whose mother, while on the phone to him, her house was swept away with her. The walls literally cracked and broke while she was on the phone with yeah. the floods in Germany. Yeah. And then convergence. You know, it is remarkable, as you say, that at a global level, these organizations, which would have been, had a particular approach and agenda and priorities 15 plus years ago, mm. have been very, very different now. 
And I'm going to give you a quote from Mary Oliver's poem, Turns, but I think you can respond to it whatever way you want, but it lands in the space of, I suppose the question I want to ask you at the end of it is, if there's a, 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 a hopeful future emerging, you know, the, 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 in the theory you approach, they talk about lean into the emerging future. What would you? What are you seeing emerging that would give us hope? But the quote, there's a couple of lines from the poem, and in the poem, Mary Oliver writes, the years to come, this is a promise, will grant you ample time to try the difficult steps in the empire of thought where you seek for the shining proofs you think you must have. Think of the agendas that you refer to 15 years ago. But nothing you ever understand will be sweeter or more binding than this deepest affinity between your eyes and the world. And it struck me, Andy, as I said, I've read some of your stuff. I've certainly heard you speak quite a lot. And you seem to always have that breadth of the depth of knowledge, but that affinity with things as they are now. Mm. What emerging future? When you, when you step back and you observe these causes for hope in, 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 the, in the dynamic shifts within global organizations, uh, when you look at the other hand, the huge multi-interdisciplinary challenges we face, in education, what would give you cause for hope in terms of the emerging future? Uh, I think, first of all, our young people and, and and what's changing with our young people. I think if you go back into the roaring days of the Celtic Tiger, the young it was a an exaggerated expression of a global phenomenon, which is uh, young people now we're thinking not of going into uh, teaching or public service, but are going straight into business. Uh, going into law school, going into business school, not going to university at all, but but going straight into a middle class job because all the companies, because of the low taxation rate in Ireland, were coming knocking on the door of Irish talent and Irish education and uh, an Irish intelligence. So the, there was a kind of um, self-seeking millennial uh, ethos uh, about wanted to get in and get on and get up as fast as you possibly could, which was mainly about me and a few people around us. So we talked about teams, but we didn't really talk about groups or about about societies. Uh, the global narrative was all about positive psychology. It was all about it's all about nudging or growth mindsets or uh, mindfulness or well, you couldn't change the world, but you could change how you thought about the world. You couldn't change your situation, but you could change how you thought about the situation. And I, I think now now young people, more and more young people, uh, are really looking at the issues that are knocking on their door and affecting their future, possibly their very existence. We've seen many people, many kids respond to the Greta Thunberg uh, agenda. In in a number of countries, uh, kids and communities have really taken issue with a big movement against uh, standardized uh, testing. Uh, during the pandemic, uh, whilst all the old people were locked away at home, it was the young people who went out on the streets, young people of all colours, uh, protesting about uh, Black Lives Matter and a little later about uh, Asian hate as well. So so our, our, our young people are changing. that They want different things. After Brexit, the applications to study political science in the UK tripled. Uh, the most unfashionable subject of the 21st century uh, with things like constitutional law 
one of the most boring subjects ever, as uh, suddenly became one of the most fascinating areas that you wanted to get into. I facilitated a university retreat here for the in Ottawa for the president's team, the president and the deans and the vice presidents a day of thinking about the post-pandemic reality. And one of the most occupied popular programs now uh, that kids are applying for this year is epidemiology. So so kids are really alert to what's going on around them and want to do something about it and and they're ready and so the question is 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 are we are the rest of us and 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 I think there are signs that that amongst teachers we we might be so uh, during the pandemic for example uh, what we saw very early on was when governments hadn't got a clue what to do in terms of how to respond educationally. Teachers turned to each other and uh, for help. And whatever the rates of collaboration were in any country, they went up. They went up in relation to the preceding level. Now, sometimes that didn't last as everybody got into Zoom fatigue and uh, nobody wanted an extra professional learning session at the end of a long day of Zoom. But, but the, the hunger and, and the competence in relation to collaboration is definitely there in the teaching force, and that's something we can build on. We've learned that we can change quickly um, we we always used to say, including in Ireland, oh, well, change is slow. You need to understand where people are coming from. They think first about what's in it for them before anybody else. And how do we deal with the resistors and so on? Well, you know, we invented a vaccine in, in less than a year once we put our minds to it. Uh, teachers learn to teach online uh, uh, in in, in ways they never even imagined existed uh, with, within days, actually, they, they started to figure out how to do this. So we, we know now that change doesn't have to be slow. Change can be quick, it can be agile, and, and, uh, and people can be behind this when they really see the, the, the need to change. And um, pretty much now, there's hardly a teacher out there who doesn't have at least some digital proficiency. And uh, so now, even if people are critical about the digital world, um, we should be sometimes. So I'm also very critical about uh, excess screen time, about digital addiction, about uh, online bullying and anxiety amongst adolescent girls, about algorithms that reinforce your prejudices with groupthink as well as your preferences. Now, I think uh, as a profession, we can do that from a standpoint of knowledge. And of competence, rather than from a standpoint of ignorance and and incompetence. So, that the, these are four huge areas which should make us, if our governments can respond, also should make us incredibly hopeful about our ability in the fifty ninth minute of the eleventh hour of the world's existence together to pull it back from the brink. Quite a clarion call. It's, it's, your, your comments are particularly timely. This is obviously a recording, so it goes in a couple of weeks' time, hopefully. But as it happens this morning, uh, we hosted an online launch of a school placement innovation report where we gathered lots of qualitative data from all higher education providers of teacher education of how they and their partner schools 
responded with agility, as you say, to the challenge of the pandemic to ensure that student-teacher learning continued. Yeah. And they continue to teach, practice teaching, learn about that, and, and so on. And in terms of the collaboration piece, I mean, it's a, it's a powerful report, about 30 pages long. It's on our website now. But one of the interesting finds for me was student teachers found themselves, because of their own particular knowledge and competence, especially useful to schools, transitioning to online learning and teaching. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not that, as the HR said, the existing, the, the experienced teachers didn't know anything, they did. But the student teachers had other skills, other competencies yeah. that were yeah. complementary. Um, so at a very fundamental level, uh, they help keep our schools open um, because they help with substitution and so on in emergency situations, but they also collaborate. So it's, it's quite interesting. And you talk elsewhere, Andy, I think in your article in the conversation, I was really struck with the more gratitude for teachers. Mm. They said, that's what we were doing this morning. We were actually trying to with a very clear evidence base, say, here's another reason we should be grateful to our teacher educators and our teachers. And there's those first two lines from Mary Oliver's poem where she says, don't just think of the trudging forward of thought, but of the wing drive of unquestioning affirmation. I presume from the head from your article that we do more of that unquestioning affirmation of teachers. Well, the incredible thing about the pandemic is something happened that has never happened in history before, worldwide. For the first time, in real time, on a massive scale, parents could watch teachers teach and watch their children learn every day. Every day. And some of this was magnificent, and some of this was awful. It was, again, the best of times and, and the worst of times. But whether it was magnificent or awful, two things have come out of this. One is we can now abandon the fantasy, the tech sector fantasy, the philanthropic fantasy many governments' fantasies, that we don't need schools anymore, that we can learn anytime, anywhere. We can access knowledge from anyone at any time. And, and now we've learned, in the main, parents don't make very good uncertified substitute teachers when, when they have other jobs to do at at the you know if you're a homeschooler you might do but in in the main they don't and the first people who've realized that are the parents yes. and and so so we have a, a reaffirmation for the sheer existence and necessity of of public schools of of state schools of, of teachers, of, of well-qualified, well, well-trained teachers. And, and whether the teachers have handled it well or, or not so well, and understand that many teachers have been teaching in an environment which does not show them at their best. It, it, it really doesn't. And that has been very disheartening for, for a lot of teachers. But, but parents have seen... How difficult, how difficult it is even with two kids in the kitchen to, to keep them going all day, never mind 
a whole bunch of kids in of all kinds in in a group kids kids that parents have never seen before in in some cases in any vivid uh in any vivid sense so so th- this is a monumental insight uh reaffirming in general the, the the value of public education and needing to find ways to reaffirm the importance of what teachers do i think will come out of this uh, apart from a few privileged uh, parents who will say oh well homeschooling wasn't so bad uh if you know, the parents had a lot of time and were able to provide a lot of support. Uh, some kids, particularly high school kids, uh, who could be self-determined learners uh, or were already self-determined and self-directed, have 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 done okay, and and they might want something a bit more flexible in in high school that could combine with their complicated lives go to school a bit stay home a bit what sixth form colleges are sometimes like rather than rather than sixth forms in schools where you have to be there every day whether you're whether you like it or not so i think we'll see a bit more flexibility for high school students uh but uh, i think we'll see some middle class parents uh, opt out into into homeschooling and um, but in the main, I think we'll see most of the public coming out of this with with renewed support for public education, for a strong, well-paid, well-supported uh, teaching teaching profession, and and hopefully, I have no evidence for this, but but hopefully, being prepared a bit more, not just to complain about their school when things go wrong. Mm-hmm. Or where the teacher falls short, mm-hmm. uh, but to thank teachers for when things go well, yes, and and positive differences have been made. Andy, as always, there's never enough time. We're in the last five minutes or so of the podcast, and the minute you used this word at the very beginning, I knew I wanted this podcast to end, and that word was Esker. It was Esker. Very, Esker. And I'll tell you why, because where I live in West Dublin, I am told by the local community, we're a parish in West Dublin, is the beginning of an esker that crosses the country oh. and concludes in Galway. And legend has it that St. Patrick, because you've had a couple of comments about Ireland throughout the podcast, and legend has it that St. Patrick, when he landed in Ireland, shortly after he landed, before he began his conversion of the nation and so on, rested on the esker. Oh. And I remember who was a, a, a local neighbor, Rhea Murphy is her name, who told me this story. For some reason, the image stuck in my mind. It was a very calm, peaceful sense of an image of this, you didn't know at the time, obviously, but this single person with a massive influence in the future of a nation taking time to rest and pause. And over the conversations you and I have had, you, we've charted a journey, I think, of your schooling, your development as a teacher, mm. teacher educator, fighting against the system to being clear what you're fighting for. So, and you spoke of your, the last few years of your fully active uh, work life, and now you're less active, perhaps, although th- that's maybe not the way it's working out in the pandemic, as I understand. If you were to take a moment to rest on your esker and look and, and reflect, what would your closing thoughts be as where we're at now as a system and where we're going to? Closing thoughts for you? Or for the audience. System. Yeah. And for the audience. Well, assuming the audience are. Irish educators um, 
as you've just done. Connect with the best of your past. Um, Ireland has a mixed history. All of us do. In, in, in Canada, we've been digging up the graves of indigenous children, uh, abused, neglected, starved to death in some cases by the empire, the Commonwealth, the Canadian government, and the church, all responsible. And so even Canada has a lot of imperfections, but, but it has many things of which uh, that make me proud to be Canadian, actually. And, and that's what it's important to do in any culture. I, I acknowledge and address the imperfections honestly and openly, but be proud of the things that make you strong. And for the Irish people, as I know them, that is uh, resilience, uh, caring, uh, community, spirituality, whether that is religious or secular, education, learning, love of literature and poetry. You're a nation of terrible painters, but, <laughs> but, a, but, a, but a country of wonderful speakers, readers, and, and, and writers. And, and, so, and, 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 and so keep, keep, keep uh, and a lot of global awareness. You know, the, the, although the population of Ireland is finally going up, Mm-hmm. Uh, now, mm-hmm. um, there's Irishness throughout the world that mm-hmm. that has mainly made the world a better place, and 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 so embrace that and and build on that and don't lose that by knowing that it is that that learning matters and keep emphasising that and the rigour and the discipline of it, as as well as the caring and and support for it. Think about the whole child. And, and not just about uh, the academic side of, of the child. Uh, build, build community, keep, keep building uh, communities and um, have people work together on, on change and improvement around this humanistic goal for, for what education is and what it should be. Uh, understand that teaching has always been one of the major lines of work for the teaching, farming, and the priesthood traditionally, and now business. And it's good that business is is now part of the Irish uh, mentality. Uh, but but don't let that eclipse the other senses of public and human service that that have underpinned the Irish identity and. Now keep striving to expand that in ways that welcome others in to the Irish fold uh, from other countries, from other cultures, from other backgrounds. Um, be the opposite of Brexit. Uh, be I don't know what the, what it would be, but you know, uh, it, uh, there's probably an acronym for that. But 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 continue to be the, the opposite of, of in a very active way, 
be be the opposite of of Brexit, um, and and welcome uh, uh, development and further transformation in in what it means. I know you teach identity in Ireland from the age of five, and and part of teaching that identity should should be about the the, the new elements that develop what that identity is and what that identity can be as as well. So you have an enormous amount that's equipped you from the past to address the unbelievable challenges in in the future. And and a young generation that is totally ready for this if we can respond. That's even for you, Andy. That's an exquisitely thoughtful set of concluding remarks. Um, you took us in the one response from, and and we have our own uh, share of that horrific past of how children were not were treated were not treated well, to put it mildly. Yeah. And you went from that to a point where we're able to have a genuine laugh and respect both spaces. Um, and that's just a beautiful note to to, to finish on. I, I particularly connect with the best of your past, acknowledging your imperfections and looking to the best of who you are and it reminds me slight segue but briefly um jamie Collins is one of my favorite musicians he's uh, from england and mm. he innovates and he learns and he embraces diversity and he does covers of songs on youtube and the song society whereby he gives himself an hour of a song he has never played before whatsoever it could be a different genre huh. and he sets the timer practices for the hour and before the hour is up he records it and that's it warts and all and he puts that recording out there and he did it with the song from mary poppins 2 where the lost things go and the song's author commented hmm. on this second last line that jamie had changed and he thought he'd done it deliberately and he said god jamie well damn you anyway but that's a beautiful change to the song it really improves the song it was my song we think you really made it hmm. something else and two lines later, Jamie comes in and says, actually, that was a mistake. I didn't mean to make that change <laughs> the song at all. And there was such beauty came from the mistake. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think your, your comments are, I mean, there's not enough time, Andy, and I do hope in the future we get a chance to, to, to re-engage with you. Because you've, you've, as rightly so, raised as many questions for us to reflect on as you've given us real insight. So it breaks my heart, Andy, to bring it to a close. Uh, I know you're a very busy man and your, your time is in high demand, but on behalf of ourselves, the Teaching Council, on behalf of all those listening, yes, the majority of our audience will be Irish, but we do have international listeners right around the world. I want to thank you most sincerely for such beautifully responsive, as I said, insightful thoughts and questions. Um, it's been a pleasure as always. I just the conversation get better and better from my perspective, I have to say, over time. I think that would be possible. I want to thank all of our listeners for tuning into the podcast, wherever you may be, whenever you are listening to it. Please, uh, as always, if you've enjoyed this episode, and I certainly have, would you please make sure to share the link with your friends on all the various social media platforms. Please don't forget either to subscribe to the podcast in the usual way. You will find us on all major podcast channels. That's the Teaching Council lighting a fire. If you have any comments or thoughts on this podcast or any others in the series, please obviously feel free to tweet them out on Twitter using the handle at Teaching Council or email us directly at communications at teachingcouncil.ie. But we'd be particularly happy if you're able to tweet some thoughts or comments on this podcast in a thread or a chain on any of the social media channels to get a conversation going and keep it going. Um, it's been my absolute pleasure to talk to you, Andy. I wish you all the best of your work and I do hope we hope we get a chance to meet face to face at some point in the future. Um, Thank you all and, and goodbye.